Can they find him, perhaps? Williams collects the snap. Has to evade the rush. And has a lot of space. Still running. Look at him go! Caleb Williams to the 30. Run out of the 25. He's got some magic to him. Now, welcome to Season 12, Episode 4 of the Sportscasters. My name is Steve Bennett. And my name is Paula Bennett. And we have a great show for you today on the program today, making his annual appearance, as he does every year about this time, to tell us of what's going on in college football and what to expect this season from The Athletic is Stuart Mandel. Woo! Also on the program today... He was once the seventh most powerful man in the WWF. He was the head writer for the WWF. He currently is the executive producer for the television show Young Rock. His name is Brian Gewertz. And we will talk to Brian after the book club update. Uh, Good show for you. Obviously, my girl Paula is here. Paula, why don't you make a big announcement to the sportscasters listeners about what is what we're working on behind the scenes here. So we are working on the polyphon for kids and adults, but we will be interviewing kid book the toy, you know. Yeah, Paula's working on her own podcast called the Polypod. And yep. she got her own logo. Why don't you describe the logo to the people? It's like a heart and some black. There's some hearts and some black. And some. It says the Paula Pod on it. Yeah, it says yep. the. My name. Yeah. Yeah, two interlocking hearts. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And so you've interviewed someone for the podcast. Yeah. Anthony. Yep. And he's probably been on the podcast. Did twenty four inch. Yeah. Um, the podcast before. Yeah, he's been on the sportscasters before. And also, we're gonna do a book club where you're gonna focus on kids books. And you're gonna do one last thing, like we do on here, but for kids and for Paul from Paula's point of view, mm-hmm. Paula's life. Tell everyone what you've been doing this week. Theater camp. Yeah, she's been in theater camp every day. What what play are you guys doing? Jungle Book. And what are you? Sassy monkey. The sassy monkey. <laughs> she's daddy's little sassy monkey. And. uh it was good of her to be on the, the sportscasters with us today. She's working hard behind the scenes on the Paul Pod, and we should have the first episode of that up soon. Woo! <laughs> and I spoke to Hollywood Dave, so we have an update on the 24-inch podcast for everyone that's out there. And the fall, we are targeting probably the second week of September uh, for a 24-inch podcast return. Um, and speaking of returns, I returned to the Place to Be Nation flagship show. Uh, yeah, I was on with Scott and Justin, and that went up on Monday, episode 608 of the longest-running episodic Woo! gold standard. Yep, is up for you. You can listen to that there. Paul, very excited today. <laughs> Paul, tell everybody what you're taking over right now. Uh, what do you got right there? 
the same time. Yeah, tell everybody the story. So, Daddy bought a Saints hat and some shorts. Yep, I'm fanatics, like I always yeah. do. Yeah. And the shirt, the the shorts are fine. Fine. Yep. But the hat was juniors. <laughs> it was for kids. So I had the. I just was like, okay, I can. And the last minute, I wanted to go, but now I wanted to keep it. Yep, she's taking it over. So now she got her Saints hat for the season. Who's your favorite Saints player, you think? Kamala and Drew Kamara and Drew Brees, of course, but he's retired. Yeah, but I think it still counts. Still counts? Yeah. And what's Kamara's favorite candy? Airheads. Yeah, which is also one of our favorite candies. Yep. What's your favorite flavor of Airheads? Red. Cherry. Cherry, yeah. And blue. I, I like blue, too. All right, so this is the show today. We're going to take a break in a minute. We're going to speak to Stuart Mandel from The Athletic about college football. Uh, then we'll be back to update the book club. We got a lot of action there. And the name the Paula Pod is not the name. It might be, but I just don't want you to know. <laughs> She's trying to swerve everybody out there. And speaking of swerves, after the book club, we're going to have Brian Gowertz on to talk about his time with the WWF. Um, and interestingly enough, as we finished up that interview... Uh, Brian said that he would like to come back in the fall because not only is there going to be a new season of Young Rock, but a debut of a show called Tales of the Territory. What the what? Tales of the Territory, yeah. What? Back when wrestling was territories and there was all the different territories. We've talked about it before, not how the wrestlers were in different regions of the country. Don't do that. People don't like that. Nobody wants to hear you blowing into the mic. Sorry. People are going to shut this podcast off so quick. <laughs> And then be like, who's that nut blowing into the microphone? It hurt my ears. But anyway, Brian will be back in the fall to talk with us about Tales of the Territories, which I believe is on Vice uh, and the new season of Young Rock. But he will make his debut today, and we'll do that a little bit later. And then we'll be back for one last thing, and I'll do some plugs. And that's the podcast for today. Oh, next week on the show, SL Price. One of the Hall of Fame sportscasters guests will join us. He was on one of the very first episodes before the pandemic, or as the pandemic had started back in March of 2020, and then he left his job at ESPN, and he's been very busy doing who knows what. We'll find out next week. And then also on the show next week is Fred Siegel from Freezing Cold Takes, the author of a new book, Football Media's Most Inaccurate Predictions and the Fascinating Stories Behind Them. Um, and I'll tell you more about that book in the book club. And also we have books to give away. So make sure you listen to the book club update here in a little bit after Mandel so you can find out how you could win as we got a stack of books over there that I'd like to mail you. Yes. And I might get some library for your kids if you have a book. Oh, you're going to send a book for other kids as well? Okay. Maybe like, I don't know, like five or two. All right, well, if you win a book and you have a kid, let me know, and Paul will pick out a book to put in there for yes. your kid. All right, sounds good. Let's take a break. We'll be right back with Stuart Mandel. Our first guest today is a sportscaster's regular 
He's been coming on this pod as long as we've been doing him. Started with the Sports Illustrated today. He's with The Athletic, where he covers college football, and he's making his annual appearance to speak about college football. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Northwestern grad, Stuart Mandel. What's up, Stuart? How you doing today, buddy? Good, Stephen. How are you? Welcome to the uh, preseason edition of our chat, right? Every year we do it. I, I, I do. I feel like you call me once a year for the preseason, and, uh, you know, it's, I get it. It's my time of year. College football is not really uh, headline news in the other eight months of the year. Well, it was this year, though. Sure. We got to talk about some of that. It used to be you were the scandal guy. Remember when I first started the show, it seemed like every time you were on, it was because some program, I think it was North Carolina one time. Um, I don't remember. I don't want to shame a yeah, program. Yeah, I mean, that, that, I remember it, that. But yeah. It's kind of crazy to think you, you've been doing or you've been having me on for, so it was like 2010, 2011-ish. Yep, 2011 it started. The night, the first show is the day after the Cam Newton BCS title win. Who'd they beat, Oregon? Oh, wow. Oregon. I think. Um, so that's how long it's been, I guess. We've we've outlasted Cam Newton's NFL career. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you mentioned the offseason and there was some news. And I think obviously the biggest news was USC and UCLA are going to move from the Pac-10 or the Pac-12 to the Big Ten. And I guess the main question is, is, as this has happened the last few years, as teams have been shifting and moving, are we ultimately getting to a point where it's going to be some sort of big two conferences as people have suggested like what do you see as kind of the future what do you think this move indicates about the future of college football yeah i mean first of all i think we're already there the 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 gap between the big 10 and sec uh, financially versus the other three power conferences is you know more more significant than it's ever been um in terms of whether they keep getting bigger and bigger time will tell um but i think that what stood out about the Big Ten's move is that was really of all of these realignment moves last decade. This was the first one that said we don't care about geography. Right. We're, we're going to be a national column, uh, our national conference, um, and and you know it does seem weird that those two schools are on an island, and that's leading to natural speculation that at some point they will add more Western schools. But um, there, you do reach a point where there aren't that many more schools that make sense for either of those conferences. I mean, it's going to be, I mean, you have Rutgers in one conference and UCLA in the other, right? I mean, that seems about as far apart as you can get on the continental USA. What does this mean for the lower sports? I mean, is, is the volley girls volleyball team going to be able to travel to play UCLA every year? I mean, does, are they creating an even more imbalance between the, how do they income and non-income sports or, uh, do you think that I mean, this clearly, will just yeah. be football and basketball and then maybe other leagues will form? In this the clearly wasn't done with the best with the best interests in mind of the non-revenue athletes. And that's Revenue, why I that think, word, yeah. yeah, I think that's what surprised people the most about UCLA doing this, because that's a that's a program, right, that produces Olympians and, um, you know, takes a lot of pride in their other sports. Now they're going to be making so much money from the Big Ten, 80, 90, 100 million a year, that they will be able to, you know, the, the kind of travel that the football team and the bas- men's basketball team enjoy, they'll just be able to do for everyone. They'll be able to charter them everywhere, but those are still long trips. And, you know, I don't think the Big Ten yet knows, you know, they, they in their press releases, they talk about doing some creative scheduling. You know, I could see a situation where, I don't know, they haven't 
I don't think they're that far along in it, but I could see a situation where you hold kind of like a AAU jamboree. You know, you bring a bunch of volleyball teams to sure. Lincoln, Nebraska, yep. and and knock out you know three or four matches in a weekend, right? Uh, so that they're not constantly having to travel. That makes sense. That's a good idea. And, and I think like you know, like hockey has shown too that you can always create leagues for the sport. You know, I mean, hockey's had the ECAC. Hockey's had you know the Big Ten of hockey, which is different schools. I mean, Notre Dame's in it. I guess otherwise they're all Big Ten schools, but. Um, so I guess that's possible too. They could always just create, you know, a men's and women's gymnastics conference that makes it easier for teams to compete if need be too. I'd like to see them just separated out entirely. I don't know how realistic that is, but you know, if you want to have uh, teams from across the country in your football conference, okay, fine. Like they only they don't travel that much, um, but it just doesn't make any sense at all for that USC and UCLA aren't going to keep playing. Stanford, Cal, uh, you know, et cetera, right. in their other sports. Right. So, you know, I, to your point, like, I don't know why there can't be a Big Ten football conference and then another Big Ten athletics conference, if you will, where the football conference helps obviously pay for the other conference, much like the NBA pays for the WNBA. Right. And there always there already is a Big Ten hockey conference. So I guess there's a little bit of precedent there, which I guess was my point, too. You know what I mean? That is. Yeah. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see this develop. There's also obviously all the different transfers from the portal, which is huge now. And, you know, Lincoln Riley and the other snake in Notre Dame they, that moved down to LSU got settled and <laughs> all those kinds of things. Forget that. W- w- were there any other big stories in the offseason of college football that are going to affect the landscape this year besides the minutia of like, you know, the UCF quarterbacks at Oklahoma now or whatever? I mean, I can't, I mean, the transfer portal now is such, so integral to the sport that it's hard to do a preseason preview and not take into account, okay, who got the most significant transfers. Um, it's, it's as significant now as, you know, high school recruiting. Sure. Um, you know, I think this year I thought was interesting was to your point, you saw the combination of, okay, Lincoln Riley goes to USC. That's a huge, huge deal. And also, Caleb Williams goes to USC, and Travis Dye from Oregon goes to USC. Jordan Addison goes from Pitt. You know, I think what you're going to see now is because of the one-time transfer exception, a new coach who goes to a high-profile program like that, it's no more, you know, three, four years, let him build up his roster. It's, we're going to go out, get a bunch of good transfers, and win now, or at least try to win now. And it's much the same thing with Brian Kelly at LSU, you know, loaded up on the portal, so... You know what it means is it's going to make this the season more unpredictable. There's a lot of teams, and I would I would throw Texas in there as well. Although they're they're um, you know coach is a second year coach, but uh, teams that have a lot of you know wide range of possibilities. Um, you know some of these teams will end up com- contending for conference championships, and some of them will be very mediocre. It's um, you know wild card. What I call I'm starting to call them wild card teams. So who are the winners and losers of the transfer transfer portal then? It's hard not to call USC the winner of the portal. I mean, Caleb Williams to me is a that's the best player. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, he's the yeah. best player. He's electrifying quarterback, but also the Bolitnikov winner receiver from from Pitt. Um, you know, Travis Dye, a four year accomplished running back at Oregon. Like they went out and got what I you know was basically an all star team on offense. I still think their defense will be pretty terrible. 
Uh, Ole Miss, Lane Kiffin has really took taken ownership of the portal. Their starting quarterback might be might be a former USC guy, Jackson Dart, um, and just you know important guys all over the field there. Um, and then that, like I said, LSU. Uh, actually, I should throw Oklahoma into the mix there. You know, big transition uh, under uh, Venables, uh, Brent yeah. Venables. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned Dylan Gabriel, quarterback from UCF. Obviously, that was a huge pickup given they lost Caleb Williams. Man, I almost I almost was fooled into thinking Caleb Williams might stay for a minute last year. I remember he did that podcast with the two OU guys, and he was like, I was like, oh, maybe. But, nah, he was never staying. Um, let's go on. So the poll came out. The AP poll, and I know Oklahoma's at the top of your list of teams you think were rated too high. Texas, for some reason, got a first place vote. Um, what? What's a, now? This poll, the preseason poll, it's fun for us to talk about when we do a preseason um, look at college football and try to get ready for the season. But it doesn't mean all that much, I guess, right? Because they got to play the games. Everyone's zero and zero. But when you looked at it, what was kind of interesting to you? Obviously, teams too high, teams too low. What were your initial thoughts on the? Uh, coaches poll the first one that we've gotten to look at this year yeah and then the ap poll came out just before we started recording oh which is that why no- you were 10 no- minutes late <laughs> okay it has a noticeable uh difference in that texas is not ranked at all in the ap oh no first uh, place preseason. votes. <laughs> no first place votes for them i'm guessing that one first place vote is why they were ranked in the coaches poll that's a lot of points right um you know you're right i keep I hate to keep harping on it but i just think ou is going under uh a tremendous amount of uh, change from one year to the next. Uh, they were already going to lose most of their key players from last season's team before they lost Caleb Williams, before they lost Lincoln Riley. So, you know, Brent Venables could end up being a tremendous coach, but first still year. Still a lot of talent first, there, though. Still a lot of talent. First there. time head coach, first year can obviously, um, you know, cause. Now, I wouldn't say there's an obvious, well, if they're not that good, who, who steps up in the Big 12? You know, Baylor. And Oklahoma State were both very good last year. Uh, Kansas State, to me, could be a surprise team. And Texas obviously has a wide range of possibilities there. Um, a recurring theme with these polls and, and even the ones I've done is we all seem to be defaulting to Texas A&M being just outside the top five. And I think we're all doing it on blind faith um, because Jimbo Fisher has recruited at such a high level for four years now that they should have a top six team. But it's not like they, I mean, they were eight and four last year. So it's not like we have a lot of evidence to support that. Right. And it looks like Oklahoma was nine in the AP top 25 too, huh? I'm trying to find it here, get it get it up, because I haven't had a chance to look at it, but looks like they were nine in both. Uh, the interesting thing that you mentioned, and I was thinking about it with Texas, is there's been a lot of these, maybe two, three, which is a lot, in the last couple of years, these like five-star, can't-miss quarterbacks of the millennium you know like what we used to say when Vince Young came out or there's a couple more that I can think of over the years and then now all of a sudden it seems like there's a trend where I'm losing track of them where they're not as can't miss as we thought like with uh Tate Martell um who bounced all around the map and sort of fizzled out and I don't want to single anyone out or uh these are high school kids that are being evaluated it's almost unfair in a way but Texas, a lot of their buzz is around, you know, getting one of these guys. Has there been some kind of change in the way people are evaluated? Is there something in the water? Why are there so many of these guys all of a sudden? Is it the internet and the hype? 
Um, what do you think's happening there? Am I misreading it a little bit that it's the same as always? It seems like there's more of these guys all of a sudden. Well, I, you know, if you look at any kind of data, the hit rate on those guys is almost exactly 50%. Okay. You know, 50% of them will turn out to be, you know, at least good, solid starters, um, if not all-conference or all-American. And 50% will just transfer around and never really find a home. Um, I think what you're referring to, though, is like is social media. Um, you know, somebody like Caleb Williams is able to develop a huge following uh, before he ever steps foot in college. Trevor Lawrence was that way. Um, you know, you're seeing that with some of the high school quarterbacks right now. They, they, they become big stars before they ever step foot in college. The first guy I remember like that was Jimmy Clausen. That was pre-social okay, media. Sure. But, you know, showing up at the limo at Notre Dame and committing, uh, I believe it was spring of his junior year. Um, Quinn Ewers, the guy that's at Texas, is a fascinating one because – you know, his recruitment was taking place during COVID, that, that period where everything was shut down. And so he he gained a very high ranking very early in the cycle, and then it just kind of, the cycle never took off. Um, and then he decided to reclassify, and, you know, he should be a true freshman right now, but he, he reclassified and, and went to Ohio State last year where he didn't play, really. So he still has all the expectations, but I have no idea if the expectations are warranted. Um, we never saw him play after elite 11 going into his senior year. We never really saw him play again in high school. Right. Cause there was no games to be played. Right. Right. Is what you're saying. Yeah. That's really interesting. And it's interesting too, that, um, he didn't lose a year at Ohio state, right? That's just essentially a red shirt or did he, did he lose? A year? Right. Okay. Yeah. So it worked out for him, I guess, in that sense. And he got to, if you go with the iron sharpens iron thing with that was on hard knocks, right? With Sewell and Hutchinson, uh, maybe he benefited from, from being there from that year. I guess that will be, will remain to be seen. Um, the only problem is he, he, I don't think he did other than maybe being around Ohio state, because when you're the fifth string quarterback or whatever he was, right, scout you don't get a lot lucky. of, yeah. Yeah. You don't get a lot of good reps in practice. Sure. Um, Fair. I think most people feel like you would have been better off staying in high school for another year, but you know, he, he was, he saw that was NIL had just gone into effect and you couldn't be paid in high school in the state of Texas. So he figured he'd start his college career and get a head start on that. What do you think you mentioned NIL and I was going to ask you about it later and we've seen it now for a couple, what, two years now, maybe, um, feels like it's been here forever now. Uh, it feels like I can't remember what it was like without it. Um, and there was, right. the, there was the dust up with, um, who was it? Sabin and Fisher, right? Kind of mm -hmm. about that. What, what do you think the the short term effect has been on college football, and, and where do you see this going in the long term? Um, obviously, it's completely yeah. I mean, I think the, the reason game, you but... feel like it's been around forever, yeah, is because you know it, on July first of last year, for maybe two days, it was very novel to see college athletes doing endorsements, right? That right. Never Barstool was doing the thing with whoever yeah. wanted to call them. Yeah. Okay. I remember. And then I yeah. would say within the first week, it just became totally normal because they should have always been doing it. Like sure. Athletes in every other sport do that. Right. Yep. So, I mean, I still get emails and press releases about this guy's going to be working with this kind of, it's like, who cares? Right. You know, right. NIL, <laughs> it, the reason NIL is so relevant is because boosters are using it to buy recruits. And that part of it is, the part that's having a huge effect on college football. Um, we are seeing, obviously, I mean, it has turned recruiting upside down where 
and I'm not, this is not, it's not all players, but there are some players, especially players whose families are not well off, who are going to whatever school, schools, you know, NIL collective will pay them the most. And, you know, you've got schools that are really front coaches who are getting really frustrated. I think you saw that come out from Nick Saban um, that, you know, they're losing play. They're they're They spend a year or two years recruiting a player and developing that relationship. And then uh, somebody else comes in with a better financial offer, you know, so it's obviously uh, something completely new and everybody's trying to figure it out. And the NCA to me is powerless to stop it. So it's got all the coaches kind of, um, you know, up in arms right now. You know, it's really interesting. And I wonder if in 10 or 15 years, there's going to be a 30 for 30 or an E60 or something. Because you say the hit rate on these top guys is about 50%. And I wonder if the 50% that don't hit are going to look back and say, you know, it was a short-sighted decision. I was thinking short-term, not long-term. You know, maybe I should have been thinking about my development and what was best for me as a football player instead of getting, you know, 50 or 100K more on the NIL. Like, I wonder if, I wonder if young kids who you say may come from never having money. I mean, I never had money when I was a kid. I'm sure if I was a top recruit and someone would have came to me with money, I could have never dreamed of. It would be hard to think of anything else. So I'm not criticizing anyone. I just wonder if in terms of development and things like that, if maybe it's going to be short-sighted a little bit because it's not forever money necessarily, maybe in some cases, maybe, but I mean, um, I don't know. The thing is, yeah, yeah, I mean, I I don't think you're wrong, but the thing is because we now have, it's the combination of that in the transfer exception where you can transfer and not lose a year of eligibility that I think a lot of the kids just feel like, well, if it doesn't work out, I'll transfer. Um, and, and maybe the second time around they will be, uh, thinking more in terms of, of development. You know, we, I have seen some kids commit, uh, to schools where, you know, it's just not, um, you know, they play a certain position where they have an opportunity to go to a certain school that's known for developing players in the position. They pick a different one because the NIL money. Um, but like I said, uh, they might get a year in or two years in and realize they made a mistake and they can transfer it freely. Yep, that's very fair. Uh, I look at the top 25, I got it up now, and it's easy to think about Bama, Ohio State, Georgia, Clemson, right? Notre Dame even, uh, OU, Michigan, no surprises there, A&M. But it seemed like Utah jumps out, and I know you're high on them. Uh, what does everyone love about Utah this year? And I think you think it's even too low for Utah at seven and whatever they were in the other one, right? You think they're even a little better? Than yeah, them? I mean, I yeah. think if you're just looking at who's coming back, um, you know, Utah, they lost three games last year, but that was a team that came into its own, uh, after a slow start, found the right quarterback. And if you watch the Rose Bowl, you know, played an extremely good Ohio State team right down to the wire, even though they were having to play a running back at cornerback. So, you know, I like Cam Rising, their quarterback, Tavian Thomas, their running back. Kyle Whittingham's teams are always good on defense. You know, the only thing that holds me back and probably holds the voters back is they've never, been in this position going into a season are they going to be able to handle you know this is a team that a program that has always just completely flown under the radar will they be able to handle the expectations of being you know going to florida the first week of the season yet to the swamp and they're the team with the top 10 ranking and florida is unranked uh it's it's just kind of uncharted uh water for them i'm sure not what they thought when those teams signed that uh that agreement to play that game i'm sure but that's wild um who else do you like? Like, just who are teams you like? 
Um, I think that, uh, you know, I guess if you go into the uh, uh, ACC, for instance, and, and they are getting recognized, but, you know, NC State is not a team you're used to seeing, sure. uh, you know, in the preseason top 15. But I think they have one of the better quarterbacks in the country coming back in Devin Leary. Um, their defense brings everybody back, including some star players who were injured last year. You know, this definitely has a chance to be a team that could win the ACC. Uh, Clemson is ranked fourth because they're Clemson. But they've got some major question marks still. DJ Uyunglele, um struggled big time last year. Uh, but right now, Dabo is sticking with him as the starting quarterback. So, um, And by the way, Dabo is the one coach, major coach left who isn't taking advantage of the portal. So he's just going to ride with the guys he has when their offensive line was not good last year. So um, I think they're vulnerable and could open the door to an NC State, to a Wake Forest, who obviously impressed everybody last year, although Sam Hartman, their quarterback, uh, is out with an undisclosed uh, illness right now. So that would definitely set them back. Um, even maybe Miami, although I think that might that hype might be a little premature, but a lot of teams that have a chance to rise up in that conference. Um you know, Michigan State, I thought, overachieved last year, and it's easy to overlook them now because Kenneth Walker, their star running back, is gone. But um, Mel Tucker does a great job reloading through the portal. Peyton Thorne's a very underrated quarterback. I think, you know, I'm looking at the AP poll right now. They're 15th. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, they should be in the top 10. I don't necessarily think it's even a given that Michigan should be ahead of them given, given all the um, – Trish and Michigan had in the offseason. And Michigan State beat them last year, correct? They did. Yeah. I mean, would they be in the next week? The, commi- right. the committee told us that, you know, we shouldn't even believe our own eyes. But, <laughs> uh, you know, look, Michigan had a really good team last year, yeah. regardless of that result, regardless of getting blown out in the uh, playoff game. They had a really good team, um, but they also had a really good staff. And so Harbaugh loses both Josh Gaddis, the, the Broyles Award winner, uh, offensive coordinator. Mike McDonald, who kind of came in as the defense coordinator last year and, and turned that unit completely around. And obviously Aiden Hutchinson, who was the number two um, pick, yeah. Number two pick and yeah. just kind of the, the the star that made that defense go. So the idea that they are gonna go that they are still gonna be eighth top ten team, to me is a bit of a stretch. And Aiden Hutchinson, apparently the next Michael Jackson. Um I don't know if you've seen Hard Knocks. Quite the singer. I haven't been seeing Hard Knocks, <laughs> no, but I know what you're referring to. Yeah. Um, let's talk about that no good. Oh, wait. Hold on. One Michigan thing. I saw an article, and I don't know if it's clickbait or what, that said, I think the, the headline was, is Jim Harbaugh running out of time at Michigan? And I said, I don't know. Is he? Let me ask Stuart. Is he running out of time at Michigan for any reason? I mean, I would think last year might have bought him time, but maybe I'm I wrong. don't think he's – no, I don't think he's running out of time. Okay. Now, he almost he almost ran himself out of time. I mean, if he would have taken that – he would have taken the Minnesota Vikings job if they had offered it. It, it uh, You know, he was, from what I'm told, was starting to um, not literally but figuratively, figuratively pack his bags, and then he bombed the interview. And, you know, Michi- if you look at recruiting, Michigan is – having a terrible recruiting year this year because I think people are kids sure. think he's yep. yeah. One foot yeah. out the door. So do you worry, no, Michigan's not going to kick him out the door. Do you think that there's people at the higher end of Michigan who think that Jim Har- Harbaugh's values don't reflect that of the university? I mean, I know he was very outspoken about what he thinks about certain topics. And um, I was surprised as someone who often can be 
not as liberal as some other people. I was surprised to see him be as forward uh, with those comments as he was. Do you think that that has hurt his standing there at all or no? Well, it's obviously, you know, probably the most divisive issue in our country right now. So to come out and take a stand one way or the other. Right. And that's um, what I meant, I think. You know what I yeah. mean? I wasn't saying I agreed or disagreed with them. It was just really interesting to see him pick a side like that so boldly, you know. I think that if it has an effect, it'll be one we, we aren't witness to. It's, you know, how does that play in the locker room? Um, how does that play, frankly, on the staff, on the support staff? There are a lot of women on the sports staff at Michigan um, that might not agree with his stance. There might be a lot of players that don't agree with his stance. Um, but that's, again, that's something internal. I don't think that the, if you're asking, like, does the president of Michigan, I don't, they, I don't think they love it. Right. Um, but Probably rather he just keep you know, it to himself. It's not quite like Nick yeah. Rolovich at Washington State last year refusing to abide by the you know the vaccine mandate that everybody else at the school had to and then he ended up getting fired sure i don't think it's quite the same as that let's real quickly talk about that no good snake lincoln riley in usc look at i don't know if you remember the last offensive play oklahoma had in the big 12 championship game but caleb williams almost won that thing by himself i mean i yeah th- he was a hair away from breaking that play all the way um he i think he's an unbelievable talent and i think he's going to get better. I mean, Lincoln Riley knows how to coach quarterbacks as much as I hate the guy. Um, he certainly knows how to coach quarterbacks. Um, and I would think he's going to continue to improve. You mentioned you like their offense. You think their defense might not be that great. That sounds like a lot of the Oklahoma teams that Lincoln Riley was yeah. pretty, pretty successful with, right? Like, how good do you think this team can be? Um, well, I Lincoln saw Riley. where at one point, like, like USC has risen toward the top of the national title odds in Vegas, okay. which is entirely premature sure but like you said you know i think of the 2018 oklahoma team that had kyler murray uh but had one of the worst defenses in the entire country like ranked in the 100s and they made it to the playoff um could he replicate that formula with usc especially you know in the pac-12 where it's not as strong uh possibly but people forget this team went four and eight last year and it was a bad for Nate. It was 20, 25 point losses almost every week. And you're telling me he's going to wave his wand and take that team to the playoff. Just seems like a stretch to me. I think they're going to have to outscore people. Um, and that, you know, that generally catches up to you at some point. You know, what, you know, a game I think is always going to haunt Oklahoma fans and probably Lincoln Riley. Um, and his time there. I can't remember if he was the head coach or the assistant at this point, but the Georgia game, you know, 54, was it 54-48 over time? Yeah. I mean, they were so far ahead. They blew that game. That was the Baker Mayfield team that beat Ohio State and Ohio State. And they had CeeDee Lamb. It's such a loaded team. Um, and what were they up? They were up at least 31-14, I think, in that game. Um, that will that, – because I would have loved to have seen what they could have done against Alabama the next week, too, who I think – I mean, and that team could have won, easily won the national title yeah, because – They blew that game. You know, as you yeah. saw, they were right there with Georgia. I don't mm-hmm. think Alabama was particularly great that year. Um, that was really the one time in his tenure, though, that they had a really good defense. Yeah. It just got worse and worse from there. Um, and, and, you know, they showed a little bit of improvement under Alex Grinch – two years ago and then it reverted right back last year so right um you know now that has become you know talk about revisionist history among oklahoma fans 
I didn't hear one word while he was still the coach about, oh, they got worse every year under him. Now, now I can't stop hearing that. Uh, you know, he won a lot of games. I don't have uh, any problem with Lincoln Riley other than the way he left. Yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, it's a bit of revisionist history oh, yeah. to say that he wasn't a great coach there. He oh, he was. was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I'm a li- I was a little surprised that he brought Alex Grinch with him as DC because I didn't think he Alex Grinch was an exceptional DC at Oklahoma by any means. But um, you know, I, I know it's important sometimes for a coach to have people he's familiar with around him. Sure. Yeah. I, look, at, I don't have any problem. He was a fantastic. He had a number o- number one overall pick and Heisman Trophy winning quarterback in back-to-back years. And then Jalen Hurts was what, third or second? I mean, man, I think he was second. Yeah, he was yeah. he was unbelievable. He was an unbelievable coach for Oklahoma. I don't have any problem with him or what he did there. The team was fun to watch or even better than that every single year. So I, I'm still surprised. I don't know why. I don't know. A topic for another time, I guess we can go through the whole thing, uh, you and I, maybe someday, when we maybe see how it plays out a little bit more. Um, the sportscaster here finishing up with Stuart Mandel from The Athletic, uh, one of the great college football minds in the country. His work is one of my favorite things to read every college football season. He's got the great weekly column that I dive into every week and love. I know he does some podcasts. We will let him lay everything out in a second, but I can't let you go without you giving me the four playoff teams. And how about just three names for the Heisman? We won't pick a winner last year because we were so far off with Spencer Rattler last year, right? We were both like, <laughs> we were both like, oh yeah, man, Rattler, he's ready to do it. Um, uh, that was that was brutal. <laughs> so how about we'll no just go it. four playoff teams and uh, three uh, names potentially for the Heisman? Okay, well I'll I'll go. You know, I think it's going to be another two SEC team uh, playoff this year. Of course, um, yeah. Alabama. Give me Alabama and Ohio State. Give me Utah, and then give me Texas A&M as the fourth team. Okay, I like it. Sticking by his Utes. I like that. That's your ride-or-die team this year. And who are your three guys for the Heisman? Mm, well, I think, you know, it's funny. Bryce Young and Will Anderson were right. You know, Bryce Young won it. Will Anderson, I think, was fourth or fifth. It's hard sometimes for those guys to then do better the next year. Sure. But if they stay healthy – and Alabama is the kind of team we assume they'll be. I would think they'll be there if CJ Stroud stays healthy. You know, I would think he would be there. So um, there's probably guys that aren't even on the radar right now yep. that will end up getting into the mix. Maybe Caleb Williams is one of them. But you know, if I'm picking just safe bets, those three seem the safest bets. Man, Caleb Williams is a sick talent. Man, USC is lucky to have that dude. I'm telling you, I would watch him play last year and and. He wasn't perfect, obviously, but like when he came in in the Texas game, fourth and one, it's like his one of his first plays ever in college football. He just runs it to the end zone, like he yeah. He's one of those guys twice. you were referring to earlier. Oh yeah, five star freshman sick. who yeah. But people I know and respect who saw him in high school thought he was going to be. You know, there was no doubt about him. Right. So like Kyler Murray, um, kind of right. I mean Kyler Murray. Was, yeah. Yeah. I also got to spend some time at USC this spring and was around him, and he carries himself. Like, it was hard for me to believe he was a sophomore. Right. <laughs> he, he seems much more poised and older, and, and and I think that comes from, you know, when you become that big a star in high school, you, you kind of get your freshman, sophomore, your experience in college, you get it then. And he's kind of a different kind of a dude, too. He kind of... 
he's kind of feels unique to me. You know, he's got the nail polish and things like that. He's got his own thing. I don't know. He feels like a real, and I think that that creates leadership. You know, he's definitely not a follower in any way. You know what I mean? He's like, he's real secure in his identity and man, he's awesome. <laughs> he is really, really great. I am definitely jealous that he is uh, not a sooner anymore. Cause he, no doubt about it. He is great. Stuart, what do you got? So what's your, I got to ask you a question. Yeah, sure. I love, you know, you clearly disagree with me and I don't blame you. What's your prediction for the Sooners? Oh, I think that they're, well, you said they're outside of the top 25. I mean, I think they'll probably win the big 12 or finish second. And then I think they'll lose one or one or two games. I mean, I, two games, probably maybe three. I, they're, I don't know enough about the quarterback. You know, I don't really know enough about, there's a lot of questions. That's where I agree with you. But I think there's a lot of talent, so I don't know that I agree they're not a top 25 team. You know what I mean? I think that they um, probably are, and I think that they'll beat Texas again because I think Texas stinks, and they always will stink. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, no, I, I mean, I don't think that they're a national title contender or anything like maybe I did last year. You know what I mean? I think they're definitely going to take a step back. But what does yeah. a step back for Oklahoma mean? I still think it means that they're one of the best teams in the Big 12. And they'll probably be playing in a big bowl game again and have some successes. And hopefully it, it's a good launching point for, you know, Brett Venerable's career at Oklahoma. But most likely, I, I just I think the Big 12 is going to be so interesting this year because there's I feel like there's so many teams that could at least get into the conference title game. You know, yeah, totally. I, you, you, there's probably five or six teams that I could see at least reaching it, if not winning it. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely like a more packed group you know near the top than it has maybe been in certain years where you know you knew it was going to be Oklahoma for sure and then you know what team that happened to beat them in October you know could make it there then um but yeah I mean it's impossible the way I've talked about Caleb Williams to lose that guy and not fall back a little you know what I mean like you're going to take a step back and and again as much as I think Lincoln Riley's a snake and I disagree with the way he handled his exit not necessarily that he exited because that's his prerogative, but the way he handled it. But um, he was a great coach too. So I don't know, you know, that I, I have high hopes in Venerables, but I don't know that he's as good as Riley was because I think Riley was very good at Oklahoma. So and and there's got to be a hat tip to Bob Stoops for stepping in and doing what he did last year too for the program. I mean, I think that says a lot to kids across the country too that there's someone who cares about the program so much to just do that out of nowhere. But uh, why don't you lay it all out for us? What's up with The Athletic this year, the college football coverage, where we can read you, where we can hear you, all that stuff. People are going to want to know it. The Athletic, you know, we take a lot of pride. We think we have the best college football coverage out there. We and I agree. Certainly have the most, thank you. We yeah. certainly have the most comprehensive team in terms of having Bruce Feldman, Andy Staples, Nicole Auerbach, Max Olson, yep. um, Chris Vanini, who does the 1-117 to rankings and the most interesting stats of the weekend. So... Um, and there's crazy deals right now. If you just go on the athletic, you can probably get a dollar a month or a dollar ninety five a month. It, it, it's well, every time I log on, there's there's something going on there. Yeah, I'm on dollar then, a month like right said, now, baby. I'm on that dollar a month right now. So. Dollar a month, yeah, man, I'm on it. Yep. I mean, it's hundreds of it's it's almost unfair to us, right? Yeah, <laughs> We're yeah. Giving our work away, Fair, sure. hundreds of articles a month because it's yeah. not just in case people aren't aware, it's not just college football. Oh no, you get it all. Sport. Yeah, you get it all. Yeah, most major uh, uh, pro and college teams have dedicated writers. So, yeah. um, and then the Audible is the podcast co- uh, Bruce Feldman and I co-host. Um, once we once the season starts, we'll be doing doing two shows a week: one on Sundays, one on Wednesdays. 
Yeah, for one dollar a month, I got my college football covered with you and Nicole and the whole team. I got my Saints coverage, you know, covered. Beat writers there. I got Sabres coverage. I got Sooners coverage. Athletics got it all for one dollar a month. You can't beat it. And Richard, I assume you're Bill, Bills guy. There's lots. No, of, I'm know. a Saints guy. My whole life oh, since okay. I was seven years old. It's my number one team. I'm well, sit- first time in a long time. It'd be, it would have been better to be a Bills fan. <laughs> I'm sitting next to Tracy Porter, uh, of giant fathead of him pointing at the end zone with was that Scott Shangley and the late great Will Smith trailing him as we we're about to uh, make a nightmare for Peyton Manning as he's about to step in the end zone at Super Bowl there you 44. Go. Yeah, so. Tracy Porter, Indiana guy. You loved him out of Indiana, right? He was. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, I remember him in Indiana. Yeah, yeah. All right, Stuart. Thank you so much for doing this. Look forward to uh, talking to you again soon. All right, thanks. That's a little too tall. Could have used a few pounds. Tight pants, points, hollering down. She was a black haired beauty with big dark eyes and points all her own, sudden way up high. Way up firm and high. Out past the cornfields where the woods got heavy. Out in the back seat of my 60 Chevy. Working on mysteries without any clues. I want to thank Stuart Mandel for being on the podcast. Always love having Stuart on the show. Real quick book club update today. First thing, I want to at least one more time, if not two more times, uh, mention the Football Outsiders Almanac 2022. It is one of the best annual football preview magazines you can't even call it a magazine it's a book that comes out every year and um Aaron was on the first episode back season 12 episode one to speak about it with us and I appreciate uh Aaron for doing that and I want to mention his book one more time you can go to footballoutsiders.com for more information about how to purchase it or you can purchase it right off Amazon as well All right, a couple of announcements today. Um, First is a new book uh, to the book club update, and that is by Stephen Hyden, uh, who previously had been on the book club for his book, Your Favorite Band is Killing Me, What Pop Music Rivalries Reveal About the Meaning of Life. That was in 2016. He was on for that, and he's back this year uh, for his book, Long Road, Pearl Jam, and the Soundtrack of a Generation. Um, And Pearl Jam, of course, has been the soundtrack of my life, and I'm looking forward to reading um, and talking to Stephen about the book, uh, Long Road. Okay, two books that I mentioned last week um, as book club books. Uh, The first one is Freezing Cold Takes NFL Football Media's Most Inaccurate Predictions and the Fascinating Stories Behind Them by Fred Siegel, who operates the Freezing Cold Takes account on Twitter. I was one of the very first people in 2015 when the account started to interview Fred on this very program, 
And because of that, he has been kind enough to provide me with multiple copies of his book, which means I can provide multiple copies to you. So if you would like to receive a copy of this book, just make sure you've given me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and send me an email. And uh, once I confirm the review, I will send you a copy of the book. No problem. Freezing Cold Takes, NFL Football Media's Most Inaccurate Predictions and the Fascinating Stories Behind Them by Fred Siegel. And Fred will be with us next episode to speak about the book. The other book, There's Just One Problem, True Tales from the Former, One-Time, Seventh Most Popular Person, Powerful Person in the WWE by Brian Gewertz. Also, I have copies of this one to give away. Uh, More details on how to win those copies soon. I think I'm going to first make them available to listeners of the 24-inch podcast. And if they don't claim them all, I'll come back here and let you know. So make sure you're a member of the 24-inch podcast Facebook group. uh, And there will be a post in there about winning a copy of Brian's book. I have five of them, I think, to give away. Uh, Again, the book's called There's Just One Problem. True Tales from the Former One-Time Seventh Most Powerful Person in the WWE. Uh, Brian currently works for Dwayne Johnson's production company and is an executive producer of Young Rock and actually wrote or helped write the episode from last season uh, where Rock made his wrestling debut. A really great episode. And I did a very fun interview with Brian, which I want you to hear right now. Uh, So let's end the book club. Don't forget the Football Outsiders Almanac. It's great every year. You can listen to Aaron's interview with us on episode one of season 12. Stephen Hyden is back with his book Long Road, Pearl Jam, and the Soundtrack of a Generation, which I cannot wait to read. And that book actually comes out. It's available for pre-order now, uh, but it comes out on September 27th. Uh, So we'll have him on the podcast sometime around then. And we will be able to speak. And I think I'm going to have a few copies of that. I know I'm going to have a few copies of that uh, to give away as well to Pearl Jam fans who listen and would like to read Stephen's book. Freezing Cold Takes, NFL Football Media's Most Inaccurate Predictions and the Fascinating Stories Behind Them by Fred Siegel on the podcast next time. If you want to win that, make sure that you've done a five-star review on Apple and send me an email, thesportscasters at gmail.com. And we're going to take a break. And when we come back, Brian Gewertz will join us to talk about There's Just One Problem, True Tales from the former one-time seventh most powerful person in the WWE. Our next guest today is a graduate of Syracuse University, the Newhouse School of Communication. He was once the seventh most powerful person in WWE. He currently works for The Rock's production company as an executive producer of the television show Young Rock on NBC. And he's making his sportscaster's debut today to speak about his book debut. There's just one problem. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Brian Gewertz. Hey, Brian. How's it doing today? Good. How are you? Congratulations on the release of the book. It comes out today as we're talking. There's just one problem. 
uh, tales from the former one-time seventh most powerful person in WWE. That sounds pretty powerful. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's this fine line of being pulling yourself and putting yourself in the top five, but not being powerful enough to warrant writing a book. So seventh seems to be the sweet spot. <laughs> Thank you. So before I started at Syracuse, because we're both Syracuse guys, before I started at Syracuse, I took summer classes, and the very first day I was there was the night that The Undertaker threw Mankind off the top of the cell, which was about one year before you started in 99, correct? Yeah, yeah, that was, um, you know, I took classes, summer classes in high school at Syracuse uh, between junior and senior year in the pre-college program. That's probably why I got in. Um, and I was at uh, my fellow Syracuse uh, friends slash alumni's uh, apartment in L.A. watching it uh, with everyone else. Yeah, I had to go take the summer classes to get in a new house because I was like originally accepted to like the School of Public Communication or something like that. It wasn't quite new house. And then I got, you know, a couple of summer classes and that's how I got to new house. That's why I did it, too. So we were, we were there for the same reasons. Yeah. Um, the reason I even bring it up is because you kind of jumped in when the ship was moving really, really fast. Right. Like if you had joined in like 96 or 95 or maybe even the first half of 97, it was when they were on the ascend from, you know, the Hogan era. Then they have the drop off with the steroid trial and all that. And there's kind of that dead period where Brett's kind of carrying them as best as he can. And then when you come in, the ascend is, has happened and it's, it's such a fast moving ship and you know, it's, it's, it's exploding. What was it like to jump on in that moment? I know that it was still, they were, I, I know it was still, there was only the two writers and it was still expanding, but did you feel like you jumped on? Was it just moving really, really fast at the time? Yeah, it definitely was. I mean, I have vivid memories of, you know, driving with the McMahons, like like hopping in their limo, um, because again, like you mentioned, there were two writers at the time. You know, the writing team, if you want to even call it that, was so small um, that we would just travel everywhere with them. So, you know, I, I remember the just the surrealness because it's something that I had never experienced before and never experienced since of like driving out of, let's say, you know. Um, Boston Arena and just you know there was fans there and just people just pounding on the side of the limo wow. um, like it was the Beatles or something <laughs> right. like that and you know all the McMahon's being pretty nonplussed because they're used to it and I'm just you know surrounded by just taking it in going holy cow this is insane uh, and then the flip side of that which is which happened to me all the time uh, which you know at first I didn't know what to make of it and then I'd later go on to kind of savor the feeling which was stepping out of the McMahon's limo with all these fans, you know, ready to just be excited and scream their guts out. And just the, just the confusion and um, ultimately uh, a little bit of anger of this, who the hell is this guy uh, phenomenon <laughs> stepping out of the McMahon's car. I was just going to say, did you feel, did you feel kind of like Frank Drebin in uh, Naked Gun when he steps out of the, uh, off the plane? And he thinks everyone's there to cheer yeah, for him, but it's yeah, like Weird Al. Here for me. <laughs> yeah, it's Weird Al. Al is on that plane. Um, exactly. Yeah, that's that's great. You know, I didn't think of this until I was reading your book. You had come from NBC with Jenny, and then you had done another show 
uh, which I'm sorry, I can't think of the name of. I, sh- I should have wrote it down. How could you forget Big Wolf on Campus? Big Wolf on Campus, yeah. thank you. That's yeah. that's my bad. So you had done the, the, the shows. You're getting really good network experience at a young age, which is amazing. And then I didn't think of this until later, but your connection was really MTV. And then you were doing a lot of work for MTV with the WWF at the time. And WWF and MTV were together during this boom as they were in 84 um, with the rock and wrestling MTV was there for the boom, um, which I didn't really kind of think of that in my head until I was reading your story and thinking about your timeline. Talk to me a little bit about MTV's role uh, when you started and how it helped uh, the, I guess, second, I guess we even call it the second boom of the company, right? 84 and, and and the attitude boom. Yeah. Well, I guess MTV had, um, you know, had a lot of success with WWE um, back in the 80s with rock and wrestling. You know, if you look back and, and you look at the hype for the war to settle the score on MTV, Piper versus Hogan. I do often. Um, you know, people, yeah, and, and you see, like, all these people being interviewed, like, they're top, top, top stars at the time. Yeah, like, DeVito. I, I remember and, correctly. Yeah. Yeah, Tina Turner's being interviewed. Like, Gary Dean Ferraro, just ran for vice president, is being interviewed. Twisted Sister. Warhol. Um, yeah, Wendy Warhol. All these, yeah. like, huge pop icons, which, as a kid, you know, watching it, like, I didn't really know who most of them were. Right, and just Cindy herself, <laughs> I knew too. who Danny Zito was. Yeah. And, What's and, that? And even just Cindy herself, who was a huge star at the time. Oh, yeah, yeah. Cindy Lauper. You know, yeah. She's so musical with huge album. Um, you know, and then, you know, I guess, you know, that developed, that, that relationship continued, you know, maybe not consecutively, but ultimately with Sunday Night Heat on uh, MTV, which was like this live one-hour show. Or I don't know if it was live. Sometimes, I guess on the nights of the pay-per-views it was live. Otherwise, I think it was taped right before Monday night and aired uh, Sunday nights. So they had, MTV had a pretty good relationship with WWE. And, you know, in the summer of 99, they wanted programming. Everyone wanted to be on board that WWE train. So they commissioned for five shows. Um, and those shows ranged from, uh, like, uh, I want to be a WWE superstar. Um, you know, obviously it was WWF back then, but I'm just calling it WWE. Yeah, I, yeah, I gotcha. Um, yeah. Uh, and so that was like on the set of TRL and Mick Foley came by the set. Um, that was another one of those limo experiences because I was a stand, I, I was producing the segment but they needed someone to stand in for Carson Daly at the time. So I stood where he stood and I looked behind me and I just, you know, it overlooked uh, Broadway and I just saw these throngs of screaming fans. And then immediately the screams were, you know, muffled by like, again, just, ap- just pure confusion and anger. Um, <laughs> when they saw it wasn't Carson Daly, it might've been Bud Bundy. Um <laughs> But we, yeah, I mean, like, that was, those five shows is when I specifically, you know, it's not like I was working at MTV before those five shows. I was hired to write those five shows. Uh, And that's where I met Nick for the first time. Well, actually, for the second time. I had met him once backstage at a show because um, we both had the same professor at Syracuse, Professor Bob Thompson. Um, He didn't go to Syracuse, but Mick went to Cortland, which is Professor Thompson's first, uh, you know, teaching job. So, I had kind of like gotten to connect with him through that, but it was definitely the first time I met Triple H and definitely the first time I met Dwayne, a.k.a. The Rock. And, you know, that's where we hit it off. And that's what ultimately, 
you know, through a series of events, you know, that I write about ultimately, uh, land the job. as one of two writers at WWE right in the, uh, dab in the, I guess the final third, I guess, if you want to call it, or, uh, uh, the attitude there. Yeah. I, I'm a big Stern guy and I, I listen to Howard every day, but I'm a lapsed fan. So similar to my wrestling love, my Howard love, I listen to catalog stuff and I was listening to something the other day where there was a fight. I think it was the stuttering John versus cabbie fight, but it was at WWE New York and like triple H and Austin were kind of there and kind of providing commentary here and there for the fight. And it just made me think, I thought about it when you were talking about how everyone wanted a piece of the company back then. And it just made me think about how incredibly crazy things were. Did you ever go with any of the wrestlers to Stern show when they were on or did you ever have any interaction that way? I don't remember it coming up in the book at all. So that's why I was asking. No, I mean, I, I like, I like Howard too. Um, but I never, you know, whenever the wrestlers, there'd be like, you know, if I'm recalling correctly, I know Stephanie was on. Yep. You know, I think, Austin uh, Rock, Rock was, was on. on. Yep. Austin. Yeah. Cena. Th- those were just Vince. Things that I think, you know, they were maybe accompanied by a WWE PR person, but you know, the writers basically. Yeah. And Shane's wife, just like everybody else. Shane's wife was at mm-hmm. there a few times. I know Howard was, was infatuated by her. So I know she would went a few times, but yeah, that was cool that yeah. they did that event at WWE New York. Any WWE New York stories? Anything you remember? I don't even, honestly, I don't even remember the Stuttering John match. I just know that, um, uh, yeah, like, I, you know, I got in trouble for this, you know, in wrestler's quarter. Uh, that's the first chapter of the book yep. um, for showing favoritism. But, like, you know, I, so, yeah, Sunday night, you would ultimately move to that restaurant in Times Square, and you'd have to produce the show live that night. And I did live in the city, but there was another writer who had just been hired who really, you know, he kind of wanted to make that show his baby. So he produced it for a while, and then I occasionally produced it when it was, you know, either Edge and Christian hosting, as I got in trouble for, uh, one time Kurt Angle. And then whenever I, whenever I would be, host, be the writer for Heat that week, I always wanted to get out of the restaurant specifically <laughs> um, and just shoot all, of, you know, run and gun and just shoot all these vignettes all around New York City um, because it was just a, a much more fun. Um, it's ultimately land back at the restaurant, but like, you know, you're so limited when you're shooting in the restaurant to just like that immediate area and an immediate backstage, you know, vicinity. Whereas, you know, if you're in New York, you know, we, I remember shooting with Kurt, we went to, uh, St. Mark's place. We went uptown. We went like literally all over culminating with, you know, in that, in that little island right out, you know, in Times Square, right outside the restaurant. Um, where we had security holding everyone off and I'm screaming, all right, let's go, let's go. And we're shooting it within, you know, 30 seconds before we all, you know, Kurt and everyone gets mobbed. Um, but yeah, those were fun. Uh, I mean, then ultimately that writer had left and yeah, it was, I think it was Paul Heyman and I who like, had to produce it like every other week we took turns. Um, and then ultimately the restaurant went away, but it was, right. it was one of those things where it was, yeah, it was fun while it lasted. <laughs> um, I know, you know, it, it, it's like, you know, there's a part of us that were like, you know, is, is two hours of raw and two hours of SmackDown and three hours of pay-per-view not enough that we have to have this other hour. Um, but yeah, it was, it, it, you know, I'm glad that we were able to do it because it was, it was very memorable. 
I think one of the great things about the Attitude Era was the fact that the WWE, you guys in general, weren't afraid to go to other places and do things like I mean, the Attitude Era, you could make an argument, even started like at Brian Pillman's house. You know what I mean? And then there's things like Booker and Austin fighting in a grocery store. You know, like I think that that's one of the Mm -hmm. things unique to the era is that there were so many different vignettes and skits that happened outside of the arena, outside of the ring. I kind of enjoyed that part of that era. Yeah, I mean, you can make an argument that by far not enough happens outside of the arena now. Oh, yeah. And that was always that was always fun when we were able to, uh, you know, to do that. And, and not necessarily even for gigantic main event things. I mean, I remember, um, like, one of the first, you know, you, you get comfortable as a writer and start working with talents and uh, start gaining their trust and, and developing a relationship. Uh, and one of the first relationships that I was able to cultivate was with uh, Al Snow and Steve Blackman, who had just been put together as a tag team. And we were trying to like, you know, the story was Al trying to get Steve's personality to come out. because Steve was always, you know, both on screen and behind the scenes, so stoic and serious all the time. Um, so, yeah, I remember like, we're in Wisconsin. Great. Let's go to a barn. Let's have Al try to teach Steve how to milk a cow. <laughs> you know, we're in uh, Florida. Great. Let's, Let's go to a retirement home and have Al give Steve these terrible jokes where Steve would attempt stand-up comedy. Um, and by the way, when we did that, uh, we did not smart up any of the denizens of the retirement home. And <laughs> <laughs> <had> lines. <laughs> so Steve would be telling these horrible jokes, some of them offensive, and would just be like just met with just so much confusion and silence, <laughs> which was just great. Because <laughs> Al in real life and on screen was just laughing his ass off. That's really good. Um, and then when the woman who we had do the line started heckling Steve, you know, the other people in the retirement home just started improvising. Not Well, they were just talking, going, you're ruining it. You're ruining the thing. You know, not knowing that she was supposed to be heckling Steve Blackman. Um, you know, those are the type of things that you just remember for so long. Um, and, and yeah, it, it was great. It was just like... There was a lot of freedom. Um, it wasn't like, okay, we've got to like run these lines by people. A lot of them we just came up with on the spot. Um, and, you know, like, look, that wasn't like a gigantic main event angle or anything. But it, but it was, you know, I think, I think those types of things are important to have, like, just, you know, especially when you're sitting there for two hours, now three hours, um, and, and just being able to, like, oh, okay, this is going to be good. This is going to be fun. I'm going to smile with this, hopefully. Um, and next time they came out, like every time they came out, came out as a team, uh, the pop, the, you know, the crowd reaction would get bigger and bigger. So I think, you know, ultimately they were working. Yeah, there's a, that's great. That was a great story. Thank you. There's a really cool picture in the book, uh, which when I looked at it for a while and was just thinking of all the different things about it. It's you guys are watching Syracuse win the title in 2003. And uh, and uh, Jr. said in there, I, I was thinking he's probably like, man, these Syracuse they beat my Sooners in the Elite Eight. You know, Hollis Price. I thought we were gonna win it this year. You know, I was thinking about him and thinking about you put Vince at fifty on Kansas. I'm thinking he's got to do that to bust your balls. But what I thought about it was like, you always hear about Vince's only wrestling. You know, that's all he cares about. I think I maybe heard he likes the Redskins or. Maybe likes to watch football yeah. once in a while, um, but you, you know that he's he's just wrestling, wrestling, wrestling. And I've heard from many people who are in a position like you or similar. I know Vince Russo said this, and others 
that it's just so 24-7 that it inevitably burns everyone out. How did you deal with the burnout? Did you feel it? Did it happen to you? Um, I know you, you towards the end of your career, you transitioned from full-time to consulting, but is that is the burnout thing and the 24-7 nature of what you went through, was that ultimately the hardest part about doing this job? Yeah, it's an adjustment for a lot of people um, who are used to kind of like work is work and home is home. And, you know, it's not necessarily, you know, what they want to mix stuff. But, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you go in there knowing that that's the nature of the piece. Um, you know, if there's... A, you know, no matter how great a show you did the week before, um, there's another one coming in less than a week, and you got to prepare for it, and you have to, and you know, and there's going to be another one after that. So you're always kind of in a state of, you know, thinking about what you can do, and and I, it's easy to have that kind of consume, you know, your your being, especially you know, in my case, where uh, you know, when we weren't traveling to TV and weren't meeting in the office. You know, I was either writing or rewriting next week's show or that week's show from home over the weekend. You know, I remember, like, sending out these scripts Saturday night and being like, all right, time to start the weekend. Well, wait, I'm traveling tomorrow to Sunday, and it's, like, 1130 at night now. <laughs> um, so, uh, the weekend is about 15 minutes. Um, but, yeah, it, it's one of those things that is, if you're not really prepared for it, or even if you say you're prepared for it but not really willing to kind of make that commitment, uh, it could be jarring. And I think one of the reasons why Vince thrived so much is because that was his passion and he loved every second of it. Like to him, it wasn't like, you know, what am I going to do on the weekend? Like, you know, go fishing or something? No. Right. Like, <laughs> it's wrestling know, time. Live, breathe this thing. And then obviously he did plenty of things with his family. I, I, I know that they always did, you know, family functions and that's very important to him. But, um, but for the most part, yeah, it's like, what could be possibly it's what it really hit me sometimes on the corporate jet when you know I would you know like to shut down after a show you know so much adrenaline and energy to it I had a portable DVD player that I always take with me um, and headphones and it would be like how are you not talking about the show or talking about you know tomorrow's show you're watching a movie what is wrong with you <laughs> it's like people do this. Um, but yeah, I mean, but it's all out of passion. So, you know, sure. the people who are there for a long time are there for a reason. But they love it. They become so uh, adept at it um, or a combination of the two that, yeah, it's like you all of a sudden people get burnt out for sure. Um, and ultimately I did too. But, you know, for the most part, it's, it's this one long, multi-week, multi-year adrenaline rush. Uh, there's just one problem, true tales from the former one-time seventh most powerful person in the WWE. It's out today as we re as we record this, so I know Brian's got a busy day. So let me just hit you with a couple more, and I'll let you go. Um, sure. My friend Hollywood Dave Rollins and my seven-year-old daughter and I also do a podcast called uh, the 24-Inch Podcast, uh, which, of course, centers around the career of Hulk Hogan, who I was excited to read plenty about in the book. And, of course... When I'm talking to someone who was so influential in The Rock's career, and I know that one of the biggest matches in Hulk's career was the match at the Skydome uh, with The Rock, I can't help but ask for some memories about that program and that match and, 
that night and and what it was like for you to be there and what you thought of the reaction. I know that some people thought it might go that way. I think Stephanie is famous for thinking that, um, and others were shocked by it. What, what what were your what are your thoughts on? I guess it's three things: uh, Hogan in general. Uh, maybe if you have a Hogan mm-hmm. story, uh, the program and the match with The Rock and and the crowd reaction and your just general thoughts about one of the most iconic matches in the history of the company. Yeah. Well, you know, if I had to like time capsule, it's in the promo segment that I was quote unquote, the writer of, but the, the, the writer really, you know, you, the writer could have been anyone and it would have been historic and, and, you know, a time capsule moment. Um, I, you know, I just, I do remember specifically working with, with Hulk and rock, uh, on their famous promo segment, uh, in Chicago, um, the one, you know, that everyone remembers, you know, in terms of the face to face and the, you know, just showing the pros they are, Hogan and Rock, you know, kind of taking, you know, looking at the crowd side to side, almost in sync um, and having the crowd going bananas. You know, the funny part about that is, you know, Hogan was very, I, I do remember Hulk being very like, you know, he, he didn't want to step on toes. He wasn't like, coming in going, no, brother, this doesn't work for me. I'm going to do this, that. He was very humble and very like, hey, what do you think? Um, yeah, was that good? Do you, you think this will work? You know, like that kind of thing. Um, because, again, this was like, literally, I think it was his second day back in WWE. The NWO showed up at No Way Out uh, in Wisconsin, you know, for that first night. And then, you know, the, the real stuff happened, you know, the second night in Chicago, if I'm remembering correctly. You know, the funny thing is, is that, we, you know, we did literally everything under the sun to build up heel heat for Hogan and in that Rock Hogan angle. Because at the end of that segment, um, I believe, if I'm, again, if I'm remembering correctly, someone will, I'm sure, correct me if it's mistaken, but like we had NWO come out, we had Rock get hit in the back of the head with a hammer, took through a table, I think. Um, taking an ambulance where we did this stunt where Hogan was in a semi truck. I remember and, that. You yep. know, like, yeah, into his ambulance as he was leaving. And, you know, the funny thing is, in hindsight, like, I wouldn't say nobody remembers it because you just remembered it, but like, it really was second, you know, in terms of memorability, just to Hogan and Rock just standing there. Yep. And making You're the right. challenge. Mm hmm. You know, none of that stuff is even necessary. It's just like the match, you put a match on paper and we're ready to go. And it just like proved how starved I think the WWE audience was to see Hogan back in their arenas and in, you know, under the WWE banner. Because I remember standing out in Toronto, in Sky Dome, I was standing next to Bruce Pritchard. We were both watching the match unfold. We, we were noticing Toronto going absolutely nuts anytime. Hogan hit rock with a move, as you recall. And I, and, you know, we, the only way we could communicate with each other was by screaming at the top of our lungs. That's <laughs> how loud it was. And I remember screaming, I was just like looking at the fans going, he passed his head in with a hammer. <laughs> like, you know, it, it didn't matter. You're right. Hogan could do no wrong that night. They were just so happy to see him. Um, so yeah, I just, you know, that was probably, you know, and again, I don't know what the math is. You know, you, you, you go to, uh, you know, 52 weeks a year of TV, you know, minus four weeks for vacation, which believe me, I took. Um, Good for you, yeah. But that's a lot of shows, um, yeah. and not to include the ones that I went to as a fan, but I have never 
ever experienced uh, a crowd electricity and the crowd so loud as they were for that Sky Dome Rock Hogan match. Unbelievable, iconic moment. And it just echoes in my head like that promo of Rock saying like, but you've never headlined one with The Rock. You know, and just like yeah. the reaction, just incredible um, and an amazing match. I remember when I first showed it to, I have a seven-year-old daughter who, you know, um, I'm teaching wrestling from the 80s, basically from WrestleMania 1 to 15 or whatever, which is my uh-huh. my love and my era. And when we first watched that match, she, she, she at I think she was four and a half at the time, looked up at me and said, Dad, the crowd doesn't even know who to cheer for. And I was like, yeah, they're split. They don't know what to do. It's crazy. Um, But just an incredible night. All right, let's finish on this. So chapter 14 is called Roddy, and it was touching to me. Again, it's kind of a lapsed fan or someone whose era or sweet spot is the 1980s um, to kind of read about your love for Roddy and the chance that you had to, um, to build a relationship with him and the incredible gift he gave you. Uh, which is also in the pictures, which is another one I stared at, the T-shirt and his autograph and um, just an incredible time with Roddy. Um, And uh, just anything. Give me a story. Give me a thought, a memory of Roddy. Um, Really, it was a a touching chapter to read through. Um, And you're you're a lucky guy for having to be able to have um, to have that time with him. But, But what do you think about about Roddy, who I know, such a great dad, you know, someone who loved his kids, someone who um, he told a story towards the end of his life where, you know, he turned to his son and said, I'm going to show you what a man is. It was backstage at WrestleMania, and he walked up to Mr. T and shook Mr. T's hand and buried the hatchet that they had from all the years of the main event at WrestleMania 1 and the boxing match at 2 and all that. But give me some thoughts on Roddy, maybe a good story that's not in the book or even one that is uh, to kind of close us out here. Yeah, no, thank you. You know, um, I dedicated the book to Roddy and my dad because I remember as a kid, um, my parents, my, my, my whenever I go, uh, I went to a couple of you know, WWE run shows in the Tri-State area all the time from Long Island. So I went to Nassau Coliseum a bunch. I went to Madison Square Garden when Roddy uh, had Bruno San Martino on a live Piper's Pit and, you know, beat the hell out of him. I remember that. Bruno yep. fought back too, but... Mm-hmm. It was a classic promo, and that's when, you know, I don't know if they really have this on the street anymore, uh, you know, ushers with souvenirs walking up and down the aisles. You know, now you just go to the stand back um, exclusively, but back then they had people going, you know, oh, yeah. uh, T-shirts, yep. foam fingers, mm-hmm. uh, and I immediately, like, right after that segment, you know, pulled out, you know, whatever money I had on me and bought a hot rod, a classic hot rod T-shirt. I remember my friend's mom looking at me, like I was a developing psychopath. Um, <laughs> but it was just, I was so entertained. And yeah, you know, you never, you know, it's always a little risk, you know, when you're meeting your heroes. But like, like you were saying, like Roddy's such, he was such a warm guy and so um, considerate. And, and I didn't know if it was going to be that way because, you know, Roddy didn't have the greatest experience with writers at WCW. That's putting it mildly. Um, he never, you know, felt that he needed one, and he really didn't. Right. Um, you know, he didn't need one himself, but he definitely, I would say he definitely did need one in a post-2003 WWE world as far as, you know, knowing what Vince was looking for and having limitations as far as, like, not going too long or not 
you know, staying on point or getting these points across, not saying what someone else was going to say later, like all that type of stuff. Because Vince had a love-hate relationship with Roddy, and you know, sometimes you know we we sit back and just enjoy the show like everyone else. Sometimes we'd be looking for an excuse to pick it apart. So it was very um, important that I had a good relationship with Roddy because I didn't want to screw it up at all. And yeah, I mean, I mention it casually in the book. It's how I got the shirt. But like for me to have a birthday party in LA and Roddy, you know, who would be like, Oh yeah, tell me where it is. I'll, uh, maybe I'll show up. And like, not thinking for a second that Rowdy Roddy Piper would show up to this schmuck's birthday party <laughs> in Los Angeles at Trader Vic's, um, you know, in, in wherever it, that was like Beverly Hills area. Um, and then for him to not only show up, uh, we totally didn't have to, uh, but show up with, with, you know, and this is the, the, the framed, uh, you know, shirt that we're talking about from the book. Yeah. He showed up with the very shirt, beer stained shirt that he wore, uh, in the ring at WrestleMania 21 with the Piper's pit with Austin, uh, and to sign it for me and stay and engage with everybody. It was all, you know, my goofy college friends were there and they were all just as starstruck as everyone. And again, like he, he didn't have to show up. He definitely didn't have to show up and hang out. I mean, he could have just come. Here's a shirt. Goodbye. Um, but yeah, it was it was totally surreal. It's like I don't what know, like inviting Batman to your birthday party. Yeah, and Batman is showing up and hanging out and, <laughs> and talking to your friends. It was just so so cool for him to do that um, and to be able to like you know be at a Knicks game. And see, you know, if you've been a mass regard and have all these yeah. artifacts all, you know, in the backstage concourse, yeah. um, and to take a picture because they have his boots, uh, and Hogan's shirt to WrestleMania. Yeah, WrestleMania. that beautiful display there. Yep. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so when we, when we first saw that, I immediately took a picture of it, sent it to him, and he's like, oh, that's great, kid. Classic <laughs> picture. Best <laughs> to your mom and dad. You know, it's just so, so cool. What a guy. Um, and I'm just, you know, so, so happy to be able to, you know, I'd be happy enough to meet him, to actually, you know, become friends with him was just absolutely awesome and surreal. It's like not only did Batman come to the party, he stuck around, and then he was showing your friends all the stuff on his belt. You know what I mean? It's like, I get what you're saying. That's yeah. awesome. And I don't know if, because I know he's prone to, um, you know, put people in sleeper holds and knock them unconscious if they asked him to. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure he probably did that to at least two or three people who loved every second of it. That's great. I, uh, if you have never heard his appearance on Stern, I could send it to you. It's really good. And he talks about his relationship with writers and his relationship with Vince. It's re- actually really interesting. Um, yeah, no, I'd love to hear it. It, it. Real quickly, the my story about the guys walking around with the merch. So, I live in Buffalo, and I was a huge steamboat fan the i thought for sure that macho man killed him i was like six at the time you know so i thought macho mm-hmm. man had killed him with the bell and when he won at wrestlemania 3 he's running around my house so we my dad takes me to a show shortly after wrestlemania 3 in june and uh steamboat comes walking out or uh yeah uh, honky tonk i guess came out first i said oh dad this guy stinks you know steamboat's gonna crush him and of course he lost the belt like right in front of me and i was crying for like 45 minutes and i remember the guy coming down and he had the foam fingers and my dad didn't know what to do and he's like can we get the kid a foam finger over here all right he's just trying to it was like a hulk rules foam finger just trying to calm me down because i was 
crying like a little lunatic at six and a half years old or whatever. Yeah, that, that's probably why they had those guys. Yeah, they exactly. knew exactly. they real hot kids in emotional states that yeah. need a foam finger stat. Yeah, we're taking the bell from Steamboat here. We better we better cover the arena. Kids are going to yeah, need something. Load up. Yeah, and then load I need it. I think I needed nachos and 45 minutes, and then uh, and then it was yeah. all ruined anyway because be, Fuji's be guy. a lot of impulse <laughs> Yeah, Fuji's guy spit green ooze in Hogan's eyes a little bit later, and I was crying again. <laughs> uh, there's just yeah. there's just one problem. True tales from the former one-time seventh most powerful person in WWE, Brian Gewertz, and the book is out today. Uh, so when you're hearing this, it's it's out. Uh, please check it out. Um, Brian was great to give me as much time as he did. I could do this all day, Brian. I'm telling you, go back and forth and, and hear the stories. And I appreciate it. Uh, the time. Do you have any questions for me? Uh, no, I'm good. I'm, okay. I'm excited. I'm glad that you liked it. I and, did. You know, we, we got through the hardest thing, which is my last name pronunciation. So, um, <laughs> well, you know, that, and that's, that's Pritchard's fault, right? Cause he's been poisoning the wrestling yeah, community yeah, yeah. for years now with some, Cockamani pronunciation. Enough, he stole all my Michael Hayes bits. Now he's mispronouncing <laughs> my name. It's one of those things that I, I constantly remind him of. And the very last thing for the second run of the book, Piper shaved Haiti Kid's head for having the gall of being friends with Mr. T, not Little Beaver, right? Oh, well, you know, um, probably something that I screwed up that surprisingly uh, the editors at, at the good folks at 12 Books did not have the uh, Piper head shaving angle. <laughs> yeah, um, like, come on. nobody. You know, they didn't know that? Come on. They don't know the difference? Yeah. <laughs> come on. No, you're, you're absolutely right. So, uh, good call. That will be, uh, hopefully, if it's paper, we will amend it. Yeah, it's poor Haiti kids. Like, no, man, that was my head. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> All right, Brian. No, you're right. Brian, thank you so much. I appreciate I appreciate it. And like I said, I could do this all day. Cool. So maybe when things t- die down, I will uh, bug your people and see if I can get you back. We can talk about Young Rock and all the things we didn't get to today. Yeah, that would be great. Thanks, Stephen. Appreciate the time. I want to thank Brian Gewertz for debuting on the podcast. also want to thank Stuart Mandel for joining us like he always does. Don't forget, you can listen to this episode and all episodes of the Sportscasters podcast on our website, www.soundcloud.com slash sports-casters. Please find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. Email the sportscasters at gmail.com. And if you can, please leave a five-star review if I've earned it on Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to check out my good friend Peter Winston and Keithy. Their podcast is Greetings from Allentown Live. They're going through 1992 WWF, and you can find him on Twitter at GF Allentown Pod. Also, my friends at Place to Be Nation. I was on the wrestling network, the Place to Be Nation Wrestling. There's wrestling and pop. I was on wrestling, the flagship show number 608. You can find information about that on Twitter at PTP. 2BN Wrestling, and also for more podcasts from my friends over there at No So Pod Network and at Jenny Position. Uh, 
four great feeds between the two on Place to Be Nation, uh, Justin on No So and Jenny on Jenny Position. Check all that out. I want to give a shout out to my friend John from New York, Long Island, Mr. Events. I know he's been having a tough week, but I want him to know I'm thinking about him and I love him. Shout out to my super fans, Bill McGrath, Fred Cast. Don't forget to check out the 24 inch podcast at 24 inch podcast. Also at 24 inch podcast at gmail.com. Uh, every other Monday, we'll be returning to continue season two in the fall, uh, probably around the second week of September. Uh, we will return for that. Enough plugs for today. One last thing. I wanted to kind of do a grab bag, a potpourri of sorts. Um, I got four or five topics I want to touch on quickly. I'll go through them all. The first is Tammy and I, who just celebrated our eighth wedding anniversary yesterday, uh, took Paula and our nephew Gregory to Splash Lagoon. Um, I was playing a joke on Paula all week saying that they had switched the name to Splish Splash Lagoon. And um, that they got really upset if the workers caught you calling it Splash Lagoon because they're trying to, you know, get everyone to embrace the change from Splash Lagoon to Splish Splash Lagoon. We had a good time. Uh, the hotel there is improved. It still needs more improvements, but it was much better than it was last time. The kids had fun on the water slides. It's like an indoor water park. It's in Erie, Pennsylvania. And Tammy did a great job of keeping the kids entertained when I needed a break. Um, and she took them on a boat ride. Uh, there was like a pirate ship and they did like a pirate play on there. And the kids had a lot of fun doing that. We went to um, some dinners. There's a restaurant kind of attached to Splish Splash Lagoon that has bowling and things like that. And we did that. And um, we did go-karts on the way out. Uh, Erie PA, where everything is within a mile road called Peach Street. Everything's right there. But we had a good time. Wanted to mention that. Another thing, Sunday morning, um, I was watching a little bit of Chelsea versus Spurs. Now, soccer is ridiculous. The scheduling of it is just ridiculous. It starts too early. It ends too late. The season is two weeks old. They did a, like a one-month preseason where these teams are traveling all around the world. It's ridiculous. Uh, but you can't deny the passion in these games sometimes. And Chelsea versus Spurs uh, was no no doubt full of that. Um, I tune in to Chelsea to keep track of Jorginho, um, who in the very first game of the season, of course, scored on a penalty uh, with absolutely no problem. I think he's now scored 15 or 14 in a row without a miss uh, for Chelsea. And of course, he's over three in his last three attempts for the Italian national team. Uh, but I do check in on Chelsea, who just also signed an Italian prodigy uh, in the in the midfield. Um, and we'll see how he does. Um, they spent a lot of money to get him there. Uh, I believe he was in the Inter um, Academy or whatever. Uh, but I keep up on Jorginho and was watching Chelsea and Spurs. And Jorginho screws up and Spurs score a goal. And then the coaches kind of squirmish and then Spurs go ahead and then Spurs are coached by Conti, who's also Italian. So I, I keep an eye on them for that. And so it's two to one Chelsea. It's in the 96th minute and Harry Kane scores a header and the game ends in a two, two tie and they go to the 
coaches, and it looks like the Chelsea coach holds on to the handshake too long, and Conte goes nuts, and there's a fight, there's a brawl. Just unbelievable drama and passion uh, for the second game of the season between Chelsea and Spurs. Really good. I enjoyed it. Soccer's too long. They need to find a way to give those players some time off. It's too much. Obviously, the World Cup is going to be in the winter this year. That's stupid. The World Cup in general this year is stupid. No reason to watch it. Get it out of there. Um, And I'm also, another soccer-related thing, I am trying to watch the Arsenal All or Nothing on Amazon because I enjoy that show. It helps me learn a lot about players I don't know a lot about, coaches I don't know about in the Premier League in general. It's really helped me improve my knowledge. Um, So check that out if you'd like. There's a lot of good sports documentaries and things like that out there right now. Between that and then there's also the captain, which is no good. Don't bother if you haven't started it yet. The Derek Jeter multi-piece documentary with no new information where he says nothing interesting. It's Jeter being Jeter. I mean, there's they got nothing out of him. There's also supposedly a Manti Teo catfishing documentary on Netflix that I want to watch. Uh, the Dark Side of Comedy is a new show. My friend John mentioned they've done a Chris Farley episode. Artie Lang and the Dice Man are coming up. I want to see if the Dice Man is just like a woke hit piece or if they actually talk about his career um, and the brilliant character that is Andrew Dice Clay and his unbelievable stand-up career, the first rock and roll comic. A couple other things before we go. Booking guests. Man, I said this before, but it's, it's really interesting. So when I book a guest, they either say yes or they just don't respond. And it's really odd. Who was raised... Um, who was raised out there to not be polite enough to return an email and say, no, thank you, or I can't at this time, or I'd love to? Just the deafening silence and how brutal it is to be ignored by some of the people in the sports media or the media in general who have their noses so high up in the air that somehow they're still up their asses. It's just unbelievable to me. Um, And I guess eight months away from it and you come back and you're like, oh, okay. Oh, I remember now. All right. One last thing for one last thing. And that there was an absurd Saints take out there on the Internet today. A friend of mine, Nick. What's up, Nick? Suggested I follow this guy who supposedly is real funny about fantasy football. And he even tweeted that he was looking to come on to shows and. I was considering booking him on to this show until I saw today that he was he put out a tweet that basically said he's staying away from Alvin Kamara in his drafts, which is fine. If you don't believe in Alvin Kamara, I have no problem with that opinion. Uh, Maybe if you think that uh, Jameis Winston just isn't going to be able to get him the ball enough because those short throws are sort of the weakness of his game. If you think that He's at an age where you start to get nervous about a player who takes hits at the running back position. Totally understand. Look, at whatever your opinion is on Kamara is your your opinion, and that's fair. What I did not like was this absurd take that he boldly proclaimed that the Saints' offensive line is just going to be so bad this year. And it's just something I've always talked about on this show that you have to find for your team 
a local beat writer or two that you trust and ignore everything the national media says about your team because they just can't follow the team enough. And it's absolutely brutal sometimes, okay? The Saints left lost Teron Armstead to Miami. And Teron Armstead was a fantastic draft pick and a fantastic player, at times an all-pro left tackle in the NFL. Okay, he only played eight games last year. And he usually maxed out around 12. He's been very injury prone. And it sucks to lose Tehran. Okay, but we had already lost Tehran. And last season also, we did not have Ryan Ramchek for most of the year. We did not have Andres Pete for most of the year. Carl Ruiz is another year into his development. The point is, is the offensive line is going to be one of the strengths of the team. Okay, it's going to be very good. And for someone like Kamara, who relies so much on the screen game, who's the best offensive lineman for the Saints in leading those screens downfield? It's Andres Pete. And he was missed last year. And if you've seen any of the highlights of the Saints' first preseason game, their first touchdown was a screen with Andres Pete out front, dominating the Texans' defense all the way to the end zone. It was a beautiful thing. And unfortunately, because uh, I did appreciate the recommendation from Nick, uh, I had to unfollow his fantasy friend because of his absurd take about the Saints offensive line, which I replied to. And then later he tweeted that he's getting some pushback on his offensive line take. Some people don't view it as a problem, but I do. Come on, buddy. You don't know anything about the Saints offensive line except for that Teron Armstead left as a free agent, and because of that, you think the offensive line's crippled. What you don't realize is that for most of the season last year, three-fifths of the Saints offensive line, including all-pro Ryan Ramchek and screen master Andres Pete, were gone. Okay, and those two will be back. And it's going to make the offensive line much better this year than it was last year. So you're gone, buddy. Thanks for coming out. All right, great shows coming up. Can't wait for SL Price next week. Be well.